If you turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 3, I said that we would spend a number of weeks in this section of Scripture because it's very rich, very deep. Um, I think it's precious to all of us. It is our Lord sitting in conversation with Nicodemus, a Pharisee. He would have been extremely um, well-educated, very respected, a member of the Sanhedrin. Um, He had to go to Jesus in the dead of night to have a conversation because he, I, I assume, was ashamed to be meeting with this carpenter from Galilee, uh, who was kind of like a like a rogue, pre, uh, tra- transient preacher, upstart sort of fellow. At least that's how it would have appeared uh, to all of these that saw him um, who didn't believe. Nicodemus, we talked about this last time. His name is very interesting. It means like victor over the people or of the people. Nico, Nike was the Greek god of victory. Demo is like democracy, people. Uh, it's actually the same, if you guys know the name Nicholas, Nicolaus, Nicolaity, meaning also meaning victor of the people. The laity would have been like the, the people. So it's very interesting, like symbolically rich portion of scripture, um, but also just so as American Protestants, American evangelicals, this is like the most quoted chapter in the Bible. It is deeply rooted in our culture. I think we think of this. When people ask, you know, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That comes to mind for so many people in our culture today. This is what, you know, if, if you ask people what they think about the Bible, this is one of the first uh, chapters that come to mind. Um, <laughs> I was thinking during the song service about the Beatitudes and how um, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel poor in spirit. I feel like I'm lacking something spiritual. I feel like I'm uh, weak. I feel like I'm uh, incapable. I feel like I don't uh, live up to the standard that I aspire to. It's not even sometimes. It's almost always. <laughs> it's every day at least. Um, and this section of scripture is what is one of the many sections of scripture that I think can um, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Like one thing leads to the other, right? And it's the poor in spirit attains the kingdom of heaven through something. And chapter 3 of John tells us what that something is. So I wasn't exactly sure how to approach it because it's long and I didn't want to just read to you. Uh, Here's another thing I've been thinking about as I've been preparing to teach these verses. Uh, So this is in... First Peter, it's the third verse of First Peter. This is really beautiful, actually. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which has, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again 
unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We've been coming out of Easter now a few weeks. And what is this saying? It's saying, blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which has, according to his abundant mercy, so in correspondence with his personal character, this is just the way that he is. Abundant mercy is just the way that he is, has begotten us again, meaning like made us again, created us anew. Very related to the new birth that we'll cover here shortly. Unto what? Unto a lively hope. Unto a lot. And so when I've been thinking about this section of scripture and how to teach it, it's like, well, what are we teaching it for? I mean, there's an intellectual knowledge that we can have. We can know that we are born again by the spirit through no effort of our own, but through the sovereign will of God, through his grace. We can know that. But what is the knowledge Towards for what purpose, right? I mean, it's a blessing to be a smart enough person to even grasp this concept, right? But if you are smart enough to grasp it, like, what is it for? Well, it says right here, we're born again to a lively hope. A lively hope. We should come here every Sunday, but especially in the, in the weeks of Easter and, and after Easter, with this lively hope. Think about what we just read out of John chapter 2. It says that the zeal of his father's house consumed him. It consumed our Lord. That that's what is zeal? Zeal, lively hope. It's 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 these are very similar kinds of things. You would have a lively hope if you were zealous about God. You would be excited. I mean, we use the word passionate, right? We say that that we're passionate about something. Passion means to suffer. We like our heart burns. For this thing, our heart yearns and burns for this thing, this thing that is salvation. And it only comes one way. So this man goes to Christ in the middle of the night and he doesn't even ask him anything. But Jesus answers because there's a question in his heart. Again, chapter two, all these. The Bible is beautiful where it sets up what immediately comes later. So. You know, it says that he doesn't need to testify man for he knows what's in man. And then when Nicodemus comes, he says, you know, we know that you're uh, uh, from God because you perform these miracles. And then Jesus answers a question that he didn't ask, which is verily, verily, I say to you that except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And how can you be born again? Can you enter again into your mother's womb? It seems ridiculous to me, is what Nicodemus is saying. And this is interesting because Nicodemus was a Jew. He would have had had an idea of, so the Jews of that time, and this probably still continues, um, you know, we know that you have to become like a little child to enter into the kingdom. And that was actually a common idea where a proselyte going into the priesthood would have had to, they would have said, you know, he becomes like a child in that he gives up all of his like worldly concerns and he gives up all of his, you know, his property, all this stuff to become a priest. So they would have understood what it means to become like a little child. And but and Christ says, well, you have to be born again. So then he says, but how can this be right? How can this be? Can you be, you know, sent back into your mother's womb? That's not possible. It's ridiculous to Nicodemus. 
But Christ answers, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so we talked about last time how um, there's so many differing perspectives on this. I'll just offer another one today, which is, I think, the most common, which is that, for example, in Ezekiel, you get the sprinkling of the water to cleanse. So the, the cleansing of the water is for the Jews would have represented a spiritual cleansing, a ritualistic cleansing. They have this ritual called a mikvah. And it's, I'm surprised I'm, I don't hear about this in church very often, but the mikvah for the Jews is like, it's, it's, it's effectively the same thing as a baptism. So it's a ritual cleansing, um, except the difference is that you would receive a mikvah in a number of different circumstances. Like if you were made unclean for some, uh, out of there by maybe touching a dead body or um, Different sects had different reasons that you have a mikvah. But one of the most common reasons to get a mikvah, and that still uh, stands today, is if a Gentile converted to Judaism. So if a Gentile converts to Judaism, it's a long process, and then you get a mikvah. The same way we baptize someone, they dunk them in water. And so you start to realize that for, for Nicodemus to be told that he has to be born again in this way would have been scandalous and outlandish to him. Like, I am a Pharisee on the Sanhedrin. I don't get mixed with, I don't need ritual cleansing because I abstain from everything that would defile me. But Christ is saying, no, even you need to be born again of the water and of the spirit. And there's this, it's just this inversion of, of what Nicodemus would have expected. Nicodemus being, again, a leader among the Jews, and he's going to this carpenter from Galilee who's just start, he's got like a cult following is what we might say today and this man is telling him Christ is telling him you have to be born again and and then you'll see that he's he then says and you don't even understand any of this so verily verily I say unto you except a man be born of water and of the spirit he cannot enter into the kingdom of God That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And this is a common thread of scripture, this distinction between the flesh and the spirit. The flesh is often called the carnal mind, right? It's the mind of the body. It's the mind of the, uh, the lusts of the flesh. The flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other so that she cannot do the things that she would. In Romans 8, it says, those that are in the flesh cannot please God. God says, there's all these examples from the Old Testament that I think are beautiful. When God says unto Noah, the end of all flesh is come before me. The end of all these sinners that I'm going to flood the earth. For the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then in in Job, Job asks, what is man that he should be clean And he, which is born of a woman, that he should be righteous. It's a rhetorical question. It doesn't make sense to Job. He understands. Job was a wise man. He understands that there is just a fundamental inability, a fundamental lack, an incompleteness in the human condition. Psalm 51, verse 10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Shouldn't we pray like this all the time? Shouldn't we be praying? to be given a clean heart. We do. I mean, we actually pray, this is, um, forgive me my trespasses, I forgive those who trespass against me, right? Lord, give us this day our daily bread. 
and, for, and forgive me for my trespasses as I forgive those who trespass against me. This is a daily cleansing of the spirit. Daily repentance, daily coming to God, daily begging to be forgiven. So why? So that we don't feel the guilt and the shame in the the way that we feel. We want to have our hearts cleansed. And marvel not that I said unto me, you, ye, must be born again. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth. Thou canst, thou hearest the sound thereof, and canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And this is like the crux of the whole thing. That the, the, the way we are cleansed is mysterious. It is in con- The wind blows where it listeth, it goes where it wants. Thou hearest the sound of it, you can sense it's there, but you cannot tell from where it's coming and where it's going. A fundamental, mysterious aspect of this is that God is everywhere, he's omnipresent, but you can't see him, but you know that he's there, and you can, you can sense him in the effects that he has, right? Like, you don't actually see the wind, you see the effects that the wind has, One, and I think this is actually a matter of apologetics. When you're talking to the unbeliever, um, generally one of the most, I think, effective lines of conversation with an unbeliever is that the unbeliever knows God, uh, but he suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, right? That's Romans 1. And you can explain to him, actually, this is exactly what Christ does. So, Nicodemus answers and says unto them, how can these things be? Because he doesn't believe. Nicodemus is not believing at this moment, right? None of this stuff makes sense to him. He is, uh, the whole idea of uh, being born again, of the uh, the spirit going where it wants, the fact that he can't do anything in this situation, right? It's like the rich young ruler who says, what do I do to go to the kingdom of God? Nicodemus, this is a question that Nicodemus was asking in his heart that Christ is answering. And, and Nicodemus doesn't believe the answer. And he says, how can these things be? And Jesus answers, are, are you a master of Israel and you don't know these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen and you receive not our witness. If I have not, if I've told you earthly things and you don't believe them, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? If I give you this illustration of the new birth and of the wind and you don't understand this metaphor, this symbol, birth, right, the the. Again, it's not like a material birth. His whole point is that it's not a material birth. It's a spiritual birth, but it's an image of a thing. If you don't understand this image of the thing, the earthly thing, how am I going to teach you heavenly things? How am I going to teach you about the Trinity and the relationship between God and the Son and the Holy Spirit? How am I going to teach you about uh, atonement? How am I going to teach you about irresistible grace? How am I going to teach you about all these heavenly things if you don't understand this simple earthly image? Right, And it's because we don't want to understand. He didn't want to understand. He wants it to be something that he can do. Right, The Pharisee wants it to be something that he can do. Just give me a set of rules. Give me a set of instructions. I need to do something to save myself. So tell me what it is. It's the same thing that the rich young ruler did. And then Christ says, you're just not getting it. There's nothing you can do. You have to be born again. That's something that you don't take part in. It's the wind blowing where it, lists, where it wants. Right? 
and you have no say in where the wind blows. And, and then on the apologetics front, <laughs> you'll get these people who are unbelievers, who, and they've got very strong opinions about the way things should be, right? Having very, let me tell you something. If you don't believe in God, or you claim not to believe in God, if you claim not to believe in God, but you have strong opinions about the way things ought to be, right? If I have strong opinions about the way things ought to be, that means that I have a premise and I have a, a conclusion, right? My premise is, you know, X, Y, and Z, therefore things ought to be this way. In the unbelieving worldview, the premise is X. There's no explanation, right? For the Christian, God says so, therefore this is the way things ought to be, right? For the unbeliever, they don't have God, so it's just X, therefore things ought to be the way that I say so, right? It's kind of like, this is one way of thinking about it. We all in this room know that zero plus one equals one, right? And you also know that one plus one equals two. But one plus one doesn't, nothing after the fact makes sense if that first primary fact doesn't also hold true, right? Right. Like, you can't do basic addition if you don't understand one plus anything equals one more. But the atheist will basically try to do the advanced math while (laughs) rejecting the fundamental premise, right? That one plus zero must equal one, right? So they reject the fundamental premise, but they try to come to advanced conclusions about morality and the way things ought to be. Which is why, if somebody is, this is, Christians, I really think it's actually pretty important that, like, in our daily life, when we're discussing things with people, if someone, you should use God in your discussions with people. Another way of putting it is, God is using you. Don't resist that. And... Because if you say, oh, things ought to be this way because science says so or because I have a feeling about it, guess what? All of that is like advanced mathematics. And the person doesn't understand a, the simple thing, which is that God exists, therefore, everything after it. Then it doesn't matter. You're having a discussion about absurd things, right? You're having a discussion about, you know, 10 times 10 equals 100 with someone who won't acknowledge that 1 plus 0 equals 1. Right? So they deny the foundation of, the, of all argument, of all reasoning. They deny the foundation that if one thing is true that leads to another thing, they deny the entire structure that that exists within. God makes it so that causes have effects and that effects have causes. And if you deny the cause, then you can't use any of the, the whole arguments absurd. And so, but we have to be comfortable In our Christianity, we have to sanctify the Lord in our hearts and set him apart and say, well, God says that man is made in his image. Therefore, the life of man is sacred and ought to be protected. When the atheist says, you know, capital punishment is wrong and we should never kill a criminal. Well, you have to ask on what basis do you have a basis for thinking that man's life is valuable and ought to be protected? Because if you don't, your argument is an absurdity, and it's meaningless. And we shouldn't, inter- like, why do we entertain that in the public sphere? I, I don't think we ought to. And this is exactly what Christ is doing. He's saying, look, you have to understand the simple things. You have to understand that you must be born again. You cannot be dead and alive at the same time. Like, that's a simple fact of life. Death and life are mutually exclusive. You cannot... You cannot be spiritually alive unless you have had a spiritual birth. 
Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? I have told you of earthly things, and you believe not. How shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Guys, I said at the beginning, I'm preaching, I'm hoping that we get to a point of lively hope, right? A zeal for the house of God. But you cannot get to a lively hope and a zeal for the house of God if you haven't been born again, right? You cannot have the fruit if you do not have the tree. And you cannot have the tree if a seed has not been planted. And if the seed has not grown up into something that bears fruit, then what are you? We're dead, right? We're just dead ground. We're dead ground with a seed that doesn't grow. I'll finish with this. No man... If I've told you these earthly things and you, and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Of course, he's talking about the cross. Of course, he's talking about the cross. But he's referring to this event that took place in Numbers I think 21. Yes, Numbers 21. So this is immediately after the Jews had had this massive victory against the Canaanites. And the people, because they are a backsliding people, they speak out against God and against Moses. This is verse 5 of Numbers chapter 21. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? This is after a major victory, massive military victory, by the way. Why have you brought us up out of the, here to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, nor neither is there any water. And our soul loathes this light bread. Because they don't believe. They don't believe in the, in the bread from heaven, right? The, the eternal bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. He chastises his people. He punishes his people. He disciplines his people to make them into disciples. He sends these fiery serpents and they bite them and many of them die. And the people come to Moses and they say, we have sinned. We have sinned and we have, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. We've spoken against the Lord and we've spoken against his messenger. We've, we revile the truth and we will only admit that we are depraved and in need of help when the chastisement of the Lord is unbearable. Isn't that how we all are? Isn't it? Isn't it how we all are? those of us who are poor in spirit and we so they go and they confess their sin we have sinned for we have spoken against the lord and against thee pray unto the lord moses on our behalf pray unto the lord that he would take away the serpents from us and moses prayed for the people and the lord said unto moses this is amazing the lord demands obedience he demands action he compels us by his holy holy word to do things and these things are then rewarded and the Lord says unto Moses make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten when he looketh upon it shall live and Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole and it came to pass that if the serpent had bitten any man when he beheld the serpent of brass he lived he lived and then 
just like that serpent was raised up in the wilderness, so our Lord had to be raised up in the wilderness. And what a bizarre comparison, right? Why? Why a serpent being raised up? And then, like, a serpent's a symbol of evil, and Christ is the ultimate good. How can these two things be reconciled next to one another? Well, when you understand the project of creation is a redemptive project, that the earth was perfect prior to the fall, and then man sullied it through his sin, God has to come up according to his divine will with a glorious plan of redemption. And he does. And that plan, it even redeems the, the serpent. We think the serpent is like a symbol of evil, but the serpent is used by God and by Moses. And then it's used by Christ as an illustration, as a, as a foreshadowing of our Lord on the cross. And like now, even today, it's used as a symbol of medicine and all these different things. And so the thing is this, there's nothing evil that can stay. Darkness is the temporary pattern. Light is the eternal pattern we are heading to an eternal day and that's the story of the gospel and how does it work well the wind blows where it listeth and we don't know where it's coming from we don't know where it's going to go next but we know that it's there and we have the word of god to assure us of these things And I'll just skip forward a few verses in John chapter 3 because this really is it. The condemnation that light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And everyone that doeth evil hates the light. This is the pattern. The pattern is so straightforward. If you are dead in your sins, you are in darkness. You can't even see this. This this simple truth that you must be born again is beyond you if you're dead in the spirit. But if you are alive in the spirit, this wakens you up to a lively hope, a zeal for your father's house that will never be destroyed, that cannot be sullied or dirtied or impure. So... I'm just so grateful that we get to go through all this together. Um, we're we're going to do a few, maybe one or two more on uh, John chapter 3. And so if you'll bow your heads with me in prayer, we'll conclude here. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you so much for the gospel of John. Lord, his um, message to us, Lord, testifying to the divinity of your son, Christ, our Savior, Lord. Uh, we just ask that everything that we've contemplated here this morning... As far as uh, the new birth, Lord, as far as the working of the spirit in man, Lord, this uh, mysterious uh, coming and going of the spirit, Lord, we just ask that um, that you, Lord, would see fit to blow your spirit upon us, Lord, that we would be uh, the recipients of that, Lord, that we would be wakened up to a lively hope, Father. Uh, We just want to be used by you, Father, for your will here on earth as it is in heaven, Lord, and All things that be done here be done to your glory. Father, we ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. I appreciate the example that Brother Danny used in uh, John chapter 3, and it's one of the best examples about the new birth and to show that how that we absolutely have nothing to do with our natural birth, nor do we with our spiritual birth, that we are recipients of it. Great example. Appreciate the message Brother Danny brought forth. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. I want to get down to verse 11 through 16. We're just going to kind of give you an overview of the first part of the chapter here. It starts out, and it's something that's it's sort of perplexing the way that it's written. It says, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. 
That sounds strange that we would labor to enter into rest. I mean, it sounds like we have to do something in order to achieve something, do something in order to experience this rest that is promised to us. In the first part of the chapter, he starts out and he says, Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us in entering into the rest that any of you should seem to come short of it. And so if you go back into chapter 3, it emphasizes in chapter 3 that there are some things that we need to actively do in order to experience the rest that God has given for us in Christ. And he says it's real important that we do not have a hardened heart, that it's really important, as Brother Danny's brought forth, that we believe the promises of God, that we believe that God has promised this rest for us. And if we have either a hardened heart or we choose not to embrace and believe the promises of God, then we're not going to experience the rest that God gives us here in this life. And we'll be able to see that. It says, for unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith. He also mentions that your faith has to be exercised in order to experience this rest. So you've got to exercise your faith. You've got to believe. Uh, you've got to not have a hardened heart in order to experience and enjoy the fullness of the rest that Christ has for you. He's not talking about eternal life. But he's talking about the rest that you can experience as a child of God here in this life. It's interesting right here. He says, for unto us was the gospel preached. The gospel is good news. It's good news about Jesus Christ. It's good news about what Christ has done for us. And if we understand it and if we embrace it, then we are entitled to experience the rest that we have in Jesus Christ. He says, for we which have believed do enter into rest, into rest, as he said. And as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. He goes back into uh, chapter 3 and he talks about the Israelites in how that they did not believe the promises of God. They did not believe Moses. And it says that they wondered, God caused them to wonder in the wilderness for 40 years. And some of them never experienced the rest that they would experience in Canaan's land because they didn't embrace and believe the promises of God. So he tells us here that even the gospel that's proclaimed, that it's a blessing to us and we should embrace the gospel that's proclaimed unto us. He, said, he comes down and he tells us in verse 7 that we harden not our hearts. He says, um, again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, today, if you will hear his voice. And he says, and harden not your voice or your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. There remaineth, therefore, a rest and it tells us who this rest is for. There remaineth therefore a rest, and he says it's for the people of God. Those that are not children of God, those that have not experienced the new birth that Brother Danny has brought forth in, in John chapter 3, are not going to experience the rest that is available for you as a child of God to experience. But not all children of God experience the same degree of rest that he's talking about.
talking about right there. There's some folks that feel like that they need to labor to help the Lord out. They need to labor to help the Lord accomplish what he's already accomplished. They need to help the Lord pay for something that he's already paid for. Your destiny in heaven itself has already been secured and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And there's not any labor that you have to do to achieve it. And by knowing that, you experience the rest that you have in Jesus Christ. To know that Christ did the work, you're the beneficiary of the work, and therefore you experience the rest that you have in Christ. He says there's a rest for the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. He uses the example earlier in the chapter about God creating the earth and doing it in six days and then resting on the seventh. And he says that there is a rest. It's not, it's not because God was tired, but God set an example for us. And there is a degree of rest that we should experience as well. Now, God didn't also stop doing anything. God created the earth and all things therein in the six days and then he rested. But God didn't stop doing things at that time. If he had, the earth wouldn't have stayed in existence. If he had, we wouldn't still be here today if God had stopped. He didn't pause because he was tired. God stopped because he had completed what he set out to do. And he set the example for us right there. But the verses I really want to get to that I think are or hopefully will be a blessing to you. It says, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any fall after the same example of unbelief. We've seen earlier in the chapter that it's important that we believe. It's important that we do not harden our hearts with unbelief. It's important that we embrace the promises of God. But then he says right here that we labor to enter into the rest. How do we labor to enter into the rest? Well, we read God's word. We present our bodies a living sacrifice. When we have the opportunity to worship the Lord, we do that. We pray. We sing the hymns of Zion. We associate with the people of God. And as a result, God blesses us with a peace that passes all understanding that the world does not understand anything about. So when you labor to enter into the rest, you're presenting your body a living sacrifice before God, which is your reasonable service. It's something that you actually enjoy doing. Some folks enjoy work, do they not? I think it's that they enjoy the accomplishment of work as well, of making a difference, of making something better. And here he talks about that you can rest when you've labored for the Lord. And then he says, for the word of God, and Christ is referred to as the word of God, but he says the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing even to the asunder of a soul of the soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. He's talking about Christ, and he's talking about the word of God, and he says that it's it's sharp and quick and powerful. And sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing and to the dividing of asunder of soul and spirit. He says, you can't yourself explain and separate soul and spirit. But God can. Christ can. Christ understands and knows it all. And he says, and the joints and marrow, you can't hardly separate that. 
But God can. God's word is quick and powerful and sharp, and it can. And it says, and that, and his, here's what he's leading to, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Now that's pretty amazing. That Christ and his word is a discerner, not only of the marrow and the joint, not only of the soul and the spirit, but it's a discerner. What does that mean? It's an interpreter. It's one that knows. It's one that understands. Even not only the thoughts of the heart, but he says the intents of the heart. So God knows. And then he breaks it down just a little bit more right here in verse 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. He's talking about mankind above right here. But he says, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He's basically saying that God knows all, that God's word is a divider of our thoughts, of our intents. And oftentimes when we're reading God's word or when we're hearing it proclaimed and preached, it addresses the thoughts that we have in our mind. It can convict us in our mind. It can redirect our mind. It can cause us where we need to make changes in our mind. And God's word knows exactly what we're thinking. We don't need to change God's word, but God's word needs to change us when we take and apply God's word. Then the last verses right here are really, really good. I like verse 14, 15, and 16. Seeing then that we, who's he talking about? The people of God, the children of God. He says, seeing then that we have a great high priest. He's not talking about a natural priest. He's not talking about a man on this earth. He's not talking about somebody that has a lifespan here on this earth. He's talking about our Lord that lives and rules and reigns forever. He's talking about one that doesn't have limited power. He's talking about one that has all power. He's talking about one that knows all about us, that knows our needs even before we ask. And he says, seeing that we, you and I, children of God, have a high priest, a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. And then he tells us who this high priest is. He tells us where he's abiding, where he's reigning, where he's ruling, and who the high priest is. He says, this is your high priest. He says, seeing then that you have a great high priest. You don't have an earthly priest that you go to, that you take your case to, but you have the one true high priest. And he tells you where he is. He says, seeing then that we have a great high priest, he's in the heavens. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father on high, and he is interceding for you and I. And when you take your case to him, he already knows what your need is. But yet when you take your case to him, it oftentimes puts your thinking in line with his thinking. He says, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. He tells us who he is. He says he is Jesus Christ, the son of God. That's his name. That's who he is. And he is your high priest. And then he says, and this is really good right here. He says, seeing that you have a great high priest. You have a great high priest that's in heaven. 
You have a great high priest that's seated by the right hand of God. You have a great high priest that is interceding on your behalf. He said, as a result of the high priest and the knowledge that you have of your high priest in heaven, he says, you hold on tight to the profession that you have. Don't let Satan come along and cause you to doubt. Don't let Satan come along and cause you to question who your high priest is. Don't let Satan come along and steal some of this joy that is there for you because of what you have in Christ. He said, if you'll embrace what Christ is to you, you're going to experience this rest that's designed for the people of God. It's a peace. It's a consolation. It's a satisfaction. You ever do a job and you work diligently and at the end of the day you have a great satisfaction about what you've accomplished the concept of work has changed over the recent years if you uh, are in the business of hiring individuals oftentimes folks will come to you and they want to know the benefits that they're going to get in their job how much time off they're going to have, what their salary is going to be, how much vacation they're, they're going to have. The concept of doing a good job and having the satisfaction of just simply doing a good job and making a difference is kind of foreign to a lot of people. And some folks have the concept or the idea that you do, do just enough to get by. Not anything more but just enough to get by. I tell you what, if you'll, I, I, I have an employee and she reminds me oftentimes, she'll say, my boss is the Lord. She said, I work unto the Lord. She said, I'm accountable to the Lord when other people, she said, when her boss is around and when her boss is not around, she said, my accountability is to the Lord. Did you know that if you'll embrace that way of thinking and that concept that your boss is the Lord, you'll be head and shoulders above a lot of people that feel like they just want to do just enough to get by and no more. Well, he says, seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed under the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our profession. He's saying, you hold tight. What you have in Christ, Christ has you in his hand. You make him the Lord of your life and you lean on him and don't become weary and well-doing along the way. But you lean on Jesus Christ and you lean on what Jesus Christ has done for you and what Christ continues to do for you. You have what you have because of him and because of the grace that he has expressed toward you. So don't try to do a work that Christ has already done. But rest in Christ and in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now here it gets really good. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. What does that mean? That's a unique way of putting it. We have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. You can simply turn it around to say that we do have a high priest that is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. What does that mean? Many 
of God's people have infirmities here in this life. It might be the infirmity of health. It might be the infirmity of mind. It could be a variety of infirmities here in this life. But he says that we have a high priest. What does it mean when it says that he's touched with the feelings of our infirmities? Two things that it means right here. Number one is he knows your infirmity even better than you do. He knows what your needs are. He's already said that he knows all about us. He knows everything there is about us. He knows our infirmity or infirmities. You might say nobody knows, nobody cares. Well, there's one person that does, and it's the Lord. He knows and he cares. So he says that you, as the child of God, as the people of God, you have a high priest and he's touched. What does that mean? He's moved. He's moved with compassion. He's moved with mercy. He's moved with grace because of your infirmity. What does that mean to you? It means that you can take your infirmity, whatever it is, and you can take it to the Lord who has the ability to help you out, who already knows your need and also cares for you. Now, a lot of times we want to pick up those infirmities every morning and carry them with us, but we need to take them to the Lord and leave them there. And let the Lord help us and bear the infirmities. And and the second thing that he highlights right here that's really, really good. He says, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched. We can turn that to say we have a high priest and he is touched with with the feeling of our infirmities. But it says, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So first of all, the first point is that our infirmities bring about weakness in our life and oftentimes the result is sin in our life when we experience the temptations of Satan sin is the result we get discouraged we get distraught with the infirmities along the way and sometimes sin is the result of it or the infirmities could be the result of sin but it tells us right here that Christ was in all points tempted so The temptations that you experienced, Christ can relate because Christ himself was tempted, yet Christ was without sin. We're tempted and we succumb to sin, but Christ was not that way. Christ experienced temptation and he was sinless. Now, wouldn't you want somebody on your side that knows what you're experiencing, that knows what you're dealing with and has been able to overcome it? Christ is an overcomer and Christ is there for you. He says he was in all points tempted like as we are, but without sin. And then this next one, I love verse 16. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Love verse 16. It says, let us, that's the people of God. That's the children of God. That's who he's talking about right here. He said, let us therefore come boldly. I pondered that. Remember when I first read that. Here's what it does not mean. He says, let us come boldly under the throne of grace. Throne of grace is the Lord Jesus Christ and his mercy and his throne. And we come before his throne when we bring our petitions to him, when we pray to the Lord. 
when we come and present our bodies a living sacrifice. Here's what it does not mean when he says come boldly. There's no place in God's kingdom for an arrogant, bold spirit for anybody. We can come boldly unto the throne of grace and we can do it in great humility. You say, how is that? How can I come boldly to the throne of grace and do it in a humble way? We can do it. We can come boldly under the throne of grace because our boldness is not in ourself, but it's in Christ. We can come boldly to the throne of grace and say, I am nothing. I'm less than nothing. But I have a great high priest that is everything that knows all about me. And because of my high priest and he is for me and he knows my needs, I can come to his throne of grace, not boldly in myself because I have all kinds of doubts. I have all kinds of setbacks, but I have a great savior. And so I can come boldly with a degree and a measure of confidence in my Lord, not in myself, but in my Lord. So he says, let us therefore come boldly. Where? To his throne of grace. All of our infirmities that we have, physical, mental, struggles that we experience here in this life, we can take them to the Lord. You can take them to the Lord in the night season. You can take them to the Lord in the daytime. And it says that we go to the Lord. And why do we take it to the Lord? What do we expect to find when we take it to the Lord? He says you take it to the Lord. And he says there's two things that you're going to find when you take it to the Lord. He says let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. You have a need. You have a struggle. You have an infirmity. You have a trial. You have a difficulty in your life. You take it to the Lord. And he says, what you're going to find when you take it to the Lord, you're not going to find a judge that's going to rebuke you, that's going to chastise you. But here's what you're going to find when you take it to the Lord. He said, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What's he saying? When you take it to the Lord, you're going to find help. Sometimes you may pray to the Lord and you don't even know what you need. But you know that you need some help. And you need it from the Lord. Have you ever prayed the prayer? You're afraid to ask for the wrong thing or you don't even know what you need. And you just simply say, Lord, would you help me? Lord, would you help me? You know what my needs are. Would you help me, Lord? He says, you take your infirmity and you take it to the Lord and you go before that throne of grace and you can expect to leave that throne of grace. And there's two things that you'll experience. You're going to experience the mercy of God. That's keeping you from getting what you deserve. God has compassion upon you because he knows what sinners we are and he knows how weak we are. And he knows how that we're prone to sin. He says, you're going to experience mercy. Means you're not going to get what you deserve. 
but you're going to get something you don't deserve, and that's grace. He says, you take it to the Lord. You're not going to get what you do deserve, and you're going to get something you don't deserve, and that's grace. You're going to find mercy and grace in time of need. I love that verse. If you need help from the Lord, if you're a needy people, if you're a needy individual, and you need help from the Lord, you take it to the Lord. And there's two promises. You're going to get mercy and you're going to get grace in your time of need. In 2 Corinthians, it tells us that his grace, you may be thinking, well, you just don't know the trial that I have. Or it is so big that I don't know if the Lord will help me. I know he can. He tells us right in in, uh, 2 Corinthians, I believe, chapter 12, that his grace is sufficient. What does that mean? It means that no matter what your trial is, what your affliction is, no matter what your burden is, no matter what your tribulation or temptation is here in this life, that his grace is sufficient. What does that mean? It means it's adequate for whatever your need is. You come boldly, not arrogantly, but humbly before the throne of grace. You take your petition to the Lord and you're going to leave with experiencing mercy and grace. Something you don't deserve, something you didn't earn, a blessing from Almighty God. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain, that we may receive something, mercy and grace to help us. And isn't that what God's people need right now? I mean, I don't know about you, but I get pretty discouraged sometimes. And what we need along the way here in this life is help. And it's great when you get it from the Lord. Find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Take it to the Lord and leave it with the Lord. And he'll strengthen you and he'll help you and he'll hold you up. May God bless you.